Today on Sporty's Fast Five podcast, we welcome legendary aerobatic pilot Patty Wagstaff, who talks about airshow life, bush flying in Alaska, and what pilots can learn from dogs. 30 minutes, five questions, and one pilot. Fast Five starts right now. Hello, pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman from Sporties, and my guest today is Patty Wagstaff. She is many things, but most listeners will know her for her airshow routines. She is highly decorated in that field, the first woman to win the title of U.S. National Aerobatic Champion, one of the few people to win that three times, and a member of the National Aviation Hall of Fame. What I didn't know myself until recently is that Patty runs a very active flight school in Florida, teaching aerobatics and upset recovery techniques. And there's also much more to the Patty story than just aerobatics, as we'll discuss. So, Patty, welcome to Fast Five. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. So let's start with air shows. I'm sure many people hear your name and instantly think of an extra, uh, you know, dashing through the skies at Oshkosh or Sun and Fun. From the ground, it looks wild, almost violent sometimes. But put us inside your head during an air show routine. Is it is it calm? Is it frenzied? Do you talk to yourself? You know, what's it like being alone up there in the cockpit? That's a really good question because, you know, we perform in front of thousands and thousands of people. But when you're when you're actually performing, you're up there in this little bubble and you're really um, isolated in a way. I mean, you can see the crowd. You can't hear them. And um, and it's, you know, it, but to me, when I'm actually flying a show, it's the payoff. I'm up there, I'm kind of raging around, down low, um, getting the most performance out of my plane, and, and I'm, I'm really smiling, thinking all the hard work, all the paperwork, all the practice, um, you know, all the money that you spend and all the things that make it happen, you get your 10 or 15 minutes in the air, and it's like, this is the payoff for all of that work. So I'm actually thinking that a lot when I'm flying. Is it almost, it's almost automatic, the maneuvers themselves, or are you talking to yourself through them as you go from, you know, snap roll to loop? It's, it's in some ways it's automatic, but you have to, you have to be able to flex and, and be very, uh, and change with the wind conditions. It's always different. Uh, sometimes the wind is blowing you on crowd. Sometimes it's blowing you off crowd. Uh, you have to adjust for all those things, but, but the idea is to get, to get to a level where it's not this conscious thought process of, oh, now I better turn right. You just automatically know where you need to be. But it takes a lot of practice to get to that point. So people that want to do air shows, you know, you, you try and explain to them that it's not just going up and doing some maneuvers just because you can do a loop and a roll. It's, it's a lot more than that. Um, and it takes a lot of practice to get to that, to that level. Um, so, you know, it's kind of not a conscious thought process. And I, I purposely... When I'm when I'm at an air show and I'm getting ready to fly and you know the hour before, um, I'll sit in my car. Most of the performers you'll see they're sitting in their car, kind of away from everybody. I don't read anything heavy. Um, I'll just look at maybe a, a fashion magazine or something like that, or I'll just listen to music just, um, and just keep my mind really clear. I don't want any any extraneous thoughts about you know, gee, I have to be doing this. Things that'll pop in my mind and and. Uh, bug me because you really have to be in this flow kind of situation. So it's like, you know, you, you see the forest and you see the trees, but you can't really think of the trees. You just have to look at the big forest. And as soon as your mind shifts out of the forest into one focus, like a tree, which the sound sounds a little esoteric, but, um, but 
then you're distracted, you know, so you want to get rid of all those distractions. And I always get in the plane nice and early, make sure my belts are tight. And, you know, I, I, I might have a crew member there helping me, but I still do my own pre-flight and really have time, time away to get organized. And, and then it's, then it just feels beautiful. It's interesting. You talk about that experience where it seems like an airshow performer is a very public thing, obviously that's the nature of it. And yet parts of it are are very private and it's it's just you alone. Is there is there some tension there or is there is it sort of like two sides of Patty Wagstaff, the public persona and then the, you know, the pilot alone in the cockpit? Do you think of it that way? You know, it's funny. I think most performers, um, or a lot of us anyway, in whatever, you know, type of performance you're doing are very introverted people and um and pretty shy. But when you're when you're talking to the crowd, you're in your flight suit and you're, you know, it's a, it's not really playing a part, but you're, you're in your performer, um, mode. Um, it, that becomes, it's fun and it's energizing. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we, a lot of air show flying is managing that. Um, you know, I don't sign autographs 20 minutes before I fly. Um, I save all that till after I fly or I plan it well ahead of time. And then, it's really important to have that special time for yourself to, to get ready. So it's hard to do that. And, and good crew members, when you have a good crew chief, they, they keep people away from you and they're brief to do that. So they're like, no, sorry. You know, and they, they stop people that are coming to your car and, and ideally you don't even see that, but I've had it happen where I'm at a show and somebody comes up to me, you know, the FA doesn't, um, allow a lot of people behind the fence up with us. You know, we can't have a big crowd there and I'm all, I don't want a big crowd anyway of, you know, family members or whoever. Um, but, um, the FA is pretty strict about it, which is good. Um, you know, essential crew only kind of thing, but occasionally somebody, you know, as part of another team or something, they don't really, they'll come up and say something, you know, just off putting or kind of, distracting before you fly to come up and ask you something about somebody or something. And you're like, darn, you know, just, you know, I don't need that right now. It's kind of a, I'm sure any athlete goes through the same thing where they're kind of sequester themselves. So it, it takes a lot of management though. <laughs> so let's move from the, the high life of air show performers to just regular aerobatics. You know, we, we can't all fly aerobatics like you. I would say most of us cannot, but regular pilots can benefit from, aerobatic training. And that's obviously something you do a lot now uh, at your school. So talk to me about the value of aerobatic training. If I'm just flying a Cessna on a nice day, uh, what, what's the value in doing aerobatic or upset training? Well, think about it like this. Um, and, and it's kind of the way I started too, was you're flying along in your Cessna or whatever or citation and you, um, you're always thinking in the back, if you haven't had aerobatic training or upset training, you're always thinking in the back of your mind, what if, right? I hate that feeling. I want to be 120%, uh, 150% ahead of the power curve or ahead of the game. So I don't want that what if feeling. I had that when I was getting my ratings. I had a hard time finding somebody to teach me spins or teach me how to do a roll or any of that stuff. And, um, and a lot of instructors haven't had aerobatic training. Some of them have, but that back of the mind, what if, what if I get in a spin, you know, it, am I going to spend the rest of my career, my life flying airplanes and not knowing, you know, that I can recover from a spin or recover from a wake turbulence, um, situation, something like that. That's, 
that's kind of the way I look at it. Like, why not at least get some basic training, upset training, aerobatic training, and know that even if you never do it again, you know, at least you know you can recover from a spin. You know, how do you know until you do it? So, um, and then a lot of people start it and then they fall in love with it. And we have a number of students that have done that and then they buy airplanes. And I kid them, I say, oh, you joined the circus. <laughs> We've worked together over the last uh, year, uh, Sporties and you, to develop an online course uh, that you know anybody who's interested in aerobatics can get kind of a flavor for it. And one of the things that struck me in that course is you really attack head on, you know, what if I'm afraid or what if I'm not sure I can do it? So do you have some standard advice you give to somebody who's sort of interested in, in go- going past, you know, 45 degrees of bank, but they're really not sure about it? Absolutely. Um, For one thing, I think that it's normal to have anxiety and be a little afraid and you're putting yourself into a new situation. And honestly, if you weren't uh, afraid or have some some anxiety, um, then that's not normal, you know, and and then you don't probably don't have the right attitude. You know, you don't it's not one of these like, you know, no fear kind of things. You know, it's to, to, to me that doesn't show a sign of maturity. And so we, I know with with us in our school, we our instructors are very experienced, but they're very laid back, and we we really do a lot to dispel anxiety when they get here, make them feel really comfortable, and and introduce things very gradually. Um, and the other question is, yeah, can, can I do it? And I wondered that too before I did aerobatics. I was um, I signed up for a course with a, a woman um, in Alaska who was teaching in a decathlon and. And I wanted to do it so badly, I was afraid that it wouldn't agree with me, even though I'd never gotten motion sickness. I was still, you know, thinking, what if what if I'm not good at it or I don't like it? Um, I'm like, well, you don't know till you try. And if you really want to do it, you will. You could be good at it. Anybody can be good at it. It's just a matter of how much time and training you put into it. And most people come back from their first flight with a big smile on their face, I have to say. Um, and... Um, they, and they realize it's not, you know, we're not going to go up and try and show off or do anything stupid and a good instructor would never do that. So, um, usually after a couple of flights, people are pretty comfortable and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important. They realize that they, they feel much more confident and, um, and able, you know, and I mean, and also the big thing for me is that people enjoy flying more. I see a lot of people, their planes are in the hangars. They only fly 50 hours a year. I'm like, get out and fly, you know, do something with your airplane. And if you're enjoying it, you're going to fly more. Yeah, that's a great point. Confidence goes a long way there. Yeah. You mentioned Alaska, and that's where I wanted to turn kind of for our our third topic. You learned to fly in Alaska, something that uh, people may not know, uh, what some people might call in the quote unquote good old days. Uh, But yeah. What, what, what did that experience yeah. teach you? you know, did, did that influence your flying, learning to fly in Alaska versus, you know, in a 172 in Florida? How did that sort of change your path in aviation, do you think? Or what did you learn from that? Oh, I mean, I, I was very, very lucky. I had some great instructors from early on, and I learned so much. I mean, you. so in 1980, when I got my license, of course, we didn't have GPS. We didn't have Loran. We had BORs and NDBs, and I'm so grateful that I learned to fly before I had a glass cockpit. And I, I really feel sorry almost for the students today that ha- that have not experienced how to fly by using pilotage, looking ahead and finding a bend in a river or a pond that's on a sectional chart. Um, I love that stuff, and I'm I'm so fortunate. And I, I hope that everybody has the chance someday to fly a little cub across the country and not have anything, maybe a backup GPS in your pocket. But. Um, 
in Alaska too, of course, a lot of mountains, uh, most of it's sea level flying. Um, so I had to learn about density altitude more when I started flying in the States, but a lot of mountains learning to fly around, you know, bush flying, that type of stuff. So I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I had that experience. And what would you say for a, a lower 48 pilot who's headed to Alaska, what should be on their must-do list for, uh, for Alaska? Is it seaplanes? Is it landing on a you know side of a glacier? What's the what's the best thing to do in Alaska in an airplane? Oh, well, a lot of people do go up and get their seaplane ratings, um, and you know you really have to plan the weather very carefully. The weather up there changes very quickly. It's not like here where you have a couple of days' notice from the front coming through. Up there, it can happen. You know, you can get two two come through in a day at certain parts of the season, um, and so um, understand weather, but yeah, float planes, um, you could go fly at Talkeetan Air Taxi up in the glaciers, um, and they have some fabulous pilots that do that. Of course, the season's really short, um, so try and get up there in June and um, respect the weather and listen to local advice. That's, that's a really biggie. Talk to, the, talk, to the, talk to the local pilots when you get up there. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with a few more questions. Want to learn aerobatics from Patty Wagstaff? She has an all-new online course that is the next best thing to flying in her extra 300. Basic Aerobatics with Patty Wagstaff is packed with over four hours of stunning HD video, showing you all the essential maneuvers from multiple angles, including 360-degree segments that let you move the camera around in flight. This course works on all your devices, from iPhone to laptop to Roku, and it comes with free lifetime updates. Fast Five listeners can save $20. Visit sporties.com slash aerobatics and use podcast four at checkout. I find your aviation background so fascinating. Again, for people who only know you as an aerobatic pilot, there's so much more there. And for example, I know you spent some time flying uh, OV-10 Broncos for Cal Fire during wildfire season. You wrote about this in some articles uh, at the time, which just seems like a, a completely unique flying experience. Are there, I guess, first of all, tell us sort of your motivation for that. But my, my second question there is, did you learn something from that? Or, you know, are there skills or techniques you learned there that inform the rest yeah. of your flying? Oh, yeah. I mean, anytime you get in a new new type of airplane or a new environment in flying, you're going to learn a lot. Um, you know, it's kind of it's hard for pilots sometimes to have beginner's mind. And, you know, when you're quite experienced um, and to go back and get a new rating or put yourself in a new situation, it's hard. And um, and there are times it's been harder than I thought it would be, you know, because you're used to being kind of the king or the queen of what you do. and then then you're just another slob getting a type rating, right? So yep. it's uh, <laughs> it's a really good it's a really good thing for people to do, and it's really it's really good for your own personal development. You're and you're flying, um, and we do get a lot of students that are very high time airline military, and they have to come here and start from the beginning. And um, you know, we talk about it. You know, there's no room for ego, and um, you know, it's it's you know the Exceptional pilots are always challenging themselves, but the OV-10 was a plane that I'd always wanted to fly. And so my whole flying career has been about flying cool airplanes and challenging myself with new things, and, you know, the whole bucket list thing of, you know, these are the, I want to fly Warbirds, I want to fly OV-10s. And um, I've made most of it happen um, just by 
taking advantage of opportunities and, and uh, you know, willpower, I guess. But I was looking for a change, um, looking for something to do. I knew a firefighter, um, firefighting pilot that I knew quite well, and we talked about it over the years. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to make a change, that's what I'll do. Fly- flying fires is probably one of the last great VFR flying jobs that there are that there is out there. So uh, I went and did a job interview, um, did the whole thing, and got got hired and um, went through the training. And, and I love the flying because when you're flying on fires, it's a, it's a real team effort. You have tankers, you have air attack, which I was flying, you have helicopters, you got media, you have this whole kind of wedding cake airspace that you're managing, and it's super exciting. So I did that for three years, and I got about 500 hours in the OV-10. That's fascinating. Sounds like, are, are there any parallels there in terms of, you know, low level uh, over a fire? Is there, is there any parallel yeah. there in terms of adrenaline, at least, between low level over an air show line? Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially for the tanker pilots. Um, and we had to stay a little higher, but we, we would get low, too, sometimes. And, and just operating this whole environment, I mean, the, the tankers are diving into canyons. And, you know, looking for a way out, it's crazy. You see them on this, like, 30-degree bank you know, this big old S2T and some of the other tankers, um, you know, putting, putting retardant down a, down a canyon wall and then coming out the other end, maybe in a little river valley or something like that. It's super exciting. It's definitely equal to air shows. <laughs> that's, that's high praise coming from you. Uh, so another fascinating part of your, of your flying history, which again, you've written about is flying for the Kenya Wildlife Service uh, in Africa, which it could probably be its own podcast of flying in Africa. So I have plenty of questions there, but I guess one of the ones that comes to mind for me is working with pilots in other countries from different backgrounds and different flying experiences. What is that like? Is it, is there sort of an aviation bond that transcends culture or, or is aviation fundamentally different uh, when you're talking to pilots in Kenya versus the United States? Aviation is the same all over the world and there's a language that pilots speak. Um, however, the cultural differences make instructing and a real challenge, um, from just how people take criticism, if you'd say, if you want to call it criticism, but take, you know, take instruction, um, or criticism, um, how they respond to you, um, whether in my case, whether they are more comfortable flying with a man than a woman. Um, which doesn't usually come into play, but it can. Um, and so there are some real cultural differences. And part of the interesting part about flying in Kenya is that Kenya is um, has a lot of different tribes and other ethnic groups there. It's it's not it's a pretty big country, but it's not you know it's not that big. And so you can have Somali Kenyans, uh, Muslim Kenyans. You have uh, Kikuyu tribe, which is the dominant tribe. Then you have all these other, you have Maasai, Sambru tribes. Um, you have English Kenyans uh, that settled there um, quite a long time ago, been, you know, many generations of uh, English or white Kenyans. Um, and you have other tribes, Luo, Lao, etc. cetera. Um, so in the Kenya Wildlife Service pilots, you might have 12, you might be working with 12 pilots in a, you know, in a group, and they're all different cultures. And there is tribal tension over there um, to some extent, but when it comes to flying, everybody gets along. And But one of my favorite, well, you, since we're not on video, but I have one of my favorite pictures is sort of right behind me, and it's a picture of 
an English Kenyan hugging a Somali, you know, pilot after a flight. And uh, it just shows the kind of camaraderie and, you know, fraternity um, that the pilots have. So all of that tra flying transcends all of that, which is one, one of the most wonderful things there that, that I've come across. But on the other hand, there are some cultural differences and um, how people respond. And, and even the English, um, sometimes they're English. Everybody speaks English to a point, And they usually speak three languages at least. Um, but they speak Swahili, English, and their own tribal language, and often another language. They kind of put us to shame. But but even then, there's there's some real challenges with that. So um, so that's been one of the one of the really cool things for me. I've been doing it for about twenty years now. Wow, um, going to Kenya, and I've been there ten times over twenty years um, doing this training. Do you have and, a um, Do you have a memory of of Kenya or, or sort of a visual of you know the view out the window from uh, from the airplane and flying over Kenya? You can paint for us. Yeah, I picture taking off uh, Kiliguni, uh, which is in Savo West National Park, uh, south um, southeast of Nairobi, and near the Tanzanian border, and near you can see Kilimanjaro from there and everything, and uh, uh, taking off on this red clay, red dirt runway, um, opening the window in a super cub and seeing a herd of elephants down there, mm. you know, and just like or seeing them on the runway. You know, <laughs> <you get> <laughs> get a lot of that <laughs> uh spectacular yeah you miss it when you're not there you know it's kind of where our dna started fascinating well patty at the end of our episodes we like to do a series of rapid fire questions a segment we call ready uh -oh. <laughs> yeah so this is i'll throw out a, a quick question you give me your gut reaction uh okay and we call this ready to copy so are you ready to copy ready to copy pits or extra Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, I'd have to say extra, but I love the pits. Why extra? Well, just nothing beats an extra, you know. <laughs> What's the most interesting air show you've performed at? So maybe not your favorite or the biggest, but what's a unique or interesting one you've flown at? Flying in Iceland at the Reykjavik airport and seeing one of the, they call them geysers, but I call them geysers shoot up in the middle of my routine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got on the radio. Do you see that? They're oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm not sure many air show fans, I'm sure I probably don't either, realize how physically demanding it is. So what's the best way to stay in shape for flying aerobatic season? Well, you have to work out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you absolutely you change your workout in the winter and you change it in the summer. In the winter you have to do more upper body, but in the summer you're getting all that. Um, but it's it's a constant, you know, sleep, diet, exercise. It's good. It keeps us keeps us on the straight and narrow. What's the if you want to call it that? <laughs> what's the longest you've gone between pulling G's in recent memory? I'll take um, two or three months off. I don't anymore because I'm teaching, but I, um, I'll take two or three months off. But the hard, longer you go, the harder it is to get it back. In addition to aerobatics, you've flown a lot of warbirds you mentioned earlier. So what's your favorite warbird that you've flown? That's easy. P-51 Mustang. It's, it's, the, it's a legend for a reason. What's, what's so yeah. great about it? It's the most exciting plane that I've ever flown. That engine, the torque, just the fact that you're flying this piece of history. Yeah. Nothing like it. You spent some time as a child in Japan. 
as I understand it, your father was a pilot for JAL. What was mm-hmm. the most interesting part about being a kid in Japan? It was very safe and we had a lot of freedom. There's virtually no crime and kids, we, I could go out in two hour walks when I was 10 years old. My parents didn't worry about me. And my dad used to let me sit in the cockpit and fly a little bit too. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. You've also done some stunt flying, I know, over the years for sort of the film TV industry. Do you have a, a favorite show or movie you've flown on or memory from that part of your career? Probably Drop Zone because I was on it for two months and got to fly a lot of different things, mainly the Pilatus Porter. And um, the Porter's a real challenge to fly, but I got about 65 hours in it and I felt like I really had it down at the end of the at the end of the shoot. And that was probably the coolest part of the whole thing. All right. So every time at the end of these sections, we like to go a little bit off aviation. So here's a non-aviation question for you. The few times I've been in your hangar, I always see a dog. So I know you're a dog. Always. <laughs> I know you're a dog lover. Uh, what, what is it about dogs that make them the best companion? And more practically, do you have any tips for flying with dogs? Because I know you do that. Well, you know, I think if you don't love dogs, something's a little wrong with you, right? Unless you're allergic to them. I'll give you that. Um, I went for three months this last bout after I lost my last little dog. She went to heaven. And uh, I thought I was going to give it a year, you know, and just like take a little break. I'm like, no, three months was enough. It was, I was lonely without a dog there. I'm always looking for my dog. So um, flying with dogs, uh, I picked up this puppy that I have. I picked her up in an RV six and, uh, brought her home, had a friend help me and she was great. She just fell asleep and, um, dogs are good traveling companions. Um, generally you need to start them young, get them used to it, but, but most dogs adapt. And, um, I would say, you know, just again, that's probably the best advice. Start it, start them young, get them some mutt muff, or yeah, mutt muffs. And uh, protect their hearing if you can on long trips, but they're, um, and don't go back to an FBO that doesn't allow dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we have to boycott them. I've seen a few. I also know that you uh, have spent some time on a horse in your life uh, at, at various yeah. times. So is there a parallel there? Is there something you learn about uh, guiding a horse and guiding the airplane in the sky? There's some crossovers there. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I talk about that a lot with my students because so much of aerobatics is learning where to look. Like if you're turning left, you should look left. Or if you're pulling up, you should look left or look for the horizon or look where you're going. And the same thing on a horse. You'll see a lot of pictures of people jumping over horses and their heads always turned about 90 degrees. That's because they're looking ahead and the horse follows that. So I think there's a lot of, um, you know, just controlling it and the finesse, you know, and, and, and there, it translates. If you're jerky in the plane, you know, the, the plane feels it. Same thing with a horse. Um, and a horse picks up on your, you know, if you're tense, a horse picks up on it. I can't say the airplane does, but it can definitely feel if you're not smooth. So all pilots should start on horse and then glider and then tailwheel and only then be introduced to the Landomatic 172. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you think. Don't forget the aerobatics. That's right. Okay. <laughs> Well, finally, Patty, the question we always close with is you've got one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Ooh, that's, some, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm probably just flying low over the beach, maybe upside down, just cruising um, 1,500 feet and above, of course. But maybe if it's my last flight, I'll dip down a little lower. <laughs> Patty, thanks for being on Fast Five. 
Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Sporty's Fast Five podcast brought to you by Sporty's Pilot Shop. For more episodes and links to additional information, visit sporties.com slash podcast. And if you enjoy this podcast, take a minute to leave a review wherever you listen. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Fast Five.